Well, good morning, or good evening to you. <laughs> I am not used to speaking at night. Um, I teach one of the Grace Seminary classes here on Sunday morning. Um, my name is Rob Grindy. I know almost all of you by face. Uh, you probably don't know me by face or name as much. Um, but I was struck as I was sitting back there just listening and participating. And um, it's been a while. My wife, Katie, and I, we have three boys, um, two uh, we, had, we gave birth to triplets in 2013. One of them passed away, so we still have two rambunctious little ones. They're four now. And so it's been a while since our, with our attendance at Sunday evening service, um, probably since prior to the Ed building when it was in the, in the chapel or in the uh, main sanctuary. So um, I got to tell you that for a 37-year-old man who grew up in a Methodist church and then Presbyterian and then uh, finished in college at a Baptist church. It sure is really nice. There's brings back a sense of nostalgia um, to hear old hymns, to hear calls to worship, to hear um, solos and organs and pianos. It is uh, amazing. And I'm saddened that um, I, I have to bring my little kids, get them out of the childcare and get them in here so that they can grow up and have that same memory because uh, it sure does warm my heart, and I appreciate it a heck of a lot more now than I did as a kid singing through hymns, and I appreciate the words instead of um, feeling like I was suffering through it as a, as a young man, so it's great now to hear, to hear those words. So uh, what an honor and, and privilege it is to, to speak tonight. Um, I gave this talk to my Sunday school class um, the day, two days before the Reformation, the anniversary of the Reformation on the 29th. Um, so here I am again today. Uh, a little bit about me so that you familiarize my, yourselves with who's talking to you here tonight. Um, I, was, uh, I was a military kid. My dad was 20 years Air Force, so we moved around a little bit. Not too much, though. And um, I came to know the Lord when I was 17 years old on a, a high school Mexico trip uh, where the Lord spoke to me, uh, not literally, but through his word and showed me that while I thought that I was a believer, I was not willing to give everything to him. And so, um, as Chet said, I, I bowed the knee that night and, and ever since have been working towards continuing to stay on that knee. So I met my wife, Katie, when I was attending Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, initially, under a degree of architecture, I quickly learned that in order to be an architect, you had to be able to draw, and I could not draw. Um, <laughs> I thought that drafting was architecture, and I quickly was schooled in my C's and D's uh, when I had had A's prior to. So um, I bailed out of that program very quickly um, and eventually settled on an English degree, mostly because I really enjoy reading, and they told me that I'd be graded on my ability to read. So I said, well, I'm a good reader, and I can, I can, I can conquer this pretty easily. What was great was that God decided to show me that uh, uh, I loved doing ministry. I was involved in our college ministry, helping out with youth as well, and I felt led to um, pursue a career in ministry. And so prior to joining seminary, I was convinced by a young pastor up in the Sacramento area to gain some experience prior to um, entering into full-time school. And so... Um, Katie and I got married and then shortly after moved up to Sacramento for a few years where I was a youth pastor in, um, at a church plant. Uh, eventually, the pastor and I did not see eye to eye on how to run ministry, 
uh, youth ministry in particular, as he was a former youth pastor and he, he had a vastly different idea than I did. And we parted ways amicably, um, and it was, it was a good part, and I pursued other churches, but they did not pursue me. And then uh, other churches pursued me, and I did not pursue them. And eventually, in my frustration, we just kind of, uh, we found a church that we really enjoyed, and I started volunteering and realized that, wow, I can do ministry as a volunteer just as well, and my, for me anyway, um, as I could on staff. So why not volunteer my time and, and give in that way while other people get paid um, full time to do that work? So that's what I did. However, I didn't know what I was going to do then. And so eventually a buddy of mine who was a CHP officer in the San Luis Obispo said, why don't you try the highway patrol? And I said, I've never really thought about being a, being a police officer, but um, sure, I'll give it a try. And he said, oh, and by the way, if you get hired, I'll get a week off. So make sure you make it all the way through the academy. <laughs> And I said, oh, that's, that's a fair deal. I'll, I'll give that a shot. And lo and behold, um, God really grabbed a hold of me. And I told Katie before entering into the academy that if at any point in time she was not behind it and felt like I shouldn't do it, that I would quit in a day. Um, there were other guys there that that was all they had. They put everything they had into being a police officer. And I, um, I was not in the same boat. Um, but what I found was that I really enjoyed it and I really loved that idea of service, um, as I had pursued ministry before, now I could pursue ministry in a different way um, by issuing people friendly reminders when they're going too fast. Um, and uh, it enabled me also to show a lot of grace and mercy. And when asked why I gave people breaks, I could talk about it um, because they asked. So um, they got to listen to a little mini sermon on the side of the road. So... Uh, Anyway, after, shortly after graduating from the academy, Katie and I gave birth to our first son, Nicholas. He's now nine. That was in 2008. We moved to Santa Barbara, or to Buellton, where I worked in Santa Barbara, and we struggled to find a church home. And as Greg said, I got a tip from uh, dear, dear friend, Tanya Winans. Uh, her son, Josh, was our pastor up in Sacramento. And uh, they said, uh, you should give Grace a shot. So after talking to Greg, this is where we called our home, and we promptly moved very quickly to Santa Maria to be closer, uh, and that's where I've been ever since. So that brings you up to speed on the life and times of Rob Grindy in five minutes. <laughs> Tonight, I'd really like to talk about the Reformation um, for a little bit. Um, back in 2000, or earlier this year, I'm sorry, in, in May of this year, the Gospel Coalition, or TGC, which is a group of churches and pastors, they put on an annual conference every other year. Now they start. They are holding their headquarters for this conference in Indianapolis, which I had never been to Indianapolis. And um, it was a fine town, but we didn't have a lot of time to explore. We spent most of our time um, within the, uh, the giant uh, conference center, big old facility there, going through a lot of different, um, different uh, topics and hearing from vast speakers and there were over 3,000 people all worshiping together and it was it was a really great time. A group of us from our Sunday school class were able to go together at a discounted rate so we went and the title of that conference um, was No Other Gospel, Reformation 500 and Beyond. And myself probably like many of you um, have a, a, an idea of what the Reformation is about, uh, but maybe not so much on why it's important, especially today in 2017. Why are we celebrating this two or 500 years later? And so I really looked forward to learning and soaking in a lot of information about the Reformation. And uh, what ended up happening was I ended up having kind of a, 
reformed movement within my heart. Because um, my interest in the Reformation was, like I said, it was, it was fairly minimal, but it became heightened. Um, before, I never delved too deeply beyond Martin Luther or John Calvin. And some names like Zwingli, Huss, and Wycliffe were familiar to me, but not necessarily on the tip of my tongue if you asked me what the Reformation was about. Um, however, others like Ocalampadius or Booser and Savonarola, they were completely alien to me, as they may be to some of you here today. So what I experienced during those days was nothing short of my own Reformation. So those events that transpired 500 years ago were captivating and intoxicating in the way in which my mind worked and in my passion. I have to, I have to kind of stop here as I realize I haven't said this yet, in that normally when I was serving in ministry and even on Sunday mornings, I, I don't read directly from notes um, ever. I usually speak off the cuff, and as such, my Sunday school class is fairly notorious for running late, uh, starting late, running late, and causing and becoming the bane of ministry workers' existence as they're trying to watch our kids because our class is composed primarily of those with fairly young children. So tonight, because of the importance of the topic, because of the details that are involved, I have everything transcribed. Now, like I said, I'm not very familiar with this sort of speaking, so I apologize if I'm not looking at you enough. I'm not as gifted as Benji or Greg in being able to look at notes, read off of them, and look up. Um, usually I just let the words fly out of my mouth, so much to the bane of my wife's existence. So... Um, <laughs> Tonight I will be reading from it uh, as, as there are a lot, there's a lot of information and I don't want to get it out of order. Uh, my brain is not a sponge like my children's and so I want to make sure that I get this right. So that's, that's kind of the process that we're going to be looking at tonight. So um, what I was striving to do this year was to learn all I could about these men and women that had helped shape not only church history but world history with their passion, with their bravery, and most importantly with their faith. So while I'm merely a Sunday school facilitator, not, I don't even call myself a teacher as I just try and guide the discussion, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to speak on this before and definitely not tonight as I think it's extremely valuable. Um, so on October 29th, I gave this talk for the first time, so I had the chance to look through it a, a few more times and make some adjustments, but for the most part, it's exactly the same as what I said before. The title of this talk is The 500th Anniversary of the Reformation, Why Should I Care? What's the big deal? Why should I care what happened 500 years ago? Um, and it's seemingly appropriate in light of the age that we live in. As these people have been dead for half a millennia, what does that have to do with me today? In order to answer that question, it's necessary to understand what led up to the Reformation, what brought it on in the first place. So, as they say, let's start at the beginning. After the death of Christ, the church was thrust into temporary paralysis, until the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ignition of spiritual fire. The following decades found a passionate people throwing their physical well-being to the wind by willingly spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A third-century apologist named Tertullian described the seeds planted by that early church as being planted by the blood of the martyrs. You see, the second-century church then faced persecution in two different forms, through continued physical persecution and also through false teaching. See, the enemy strategically came after the early saints, but they responded with resilience. They responded with a willingness to die for their faith, and they responded with confessions of their true faith in the form of ecumenical creeds in order to counter that distorted message of the cross. 
These battles that were raging within the early church, they continued into the third century, and a bunch of famous apologists like Justin Martyr and Origen, they started expounding on the scriptures in ways that hadn't been heard before. They realized that there were many layers to biblical texts that required careful study and reading. The apologist we mentioned before at the beginning, Tertullian, he opposed a group known as the modalists, whose aim was to distort the very nature of God and thus the Trinity. Roman persecution of the early church continued into the beginning of the 4th century. And in 312, the Roman Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity, a monumental occasion for Christians in the early church. Shortly after, the Council of Nicaea met in 325 over what it meant for Jesus to be both God and man, 100% of both. This council ultimately penned the Nicene Creed, which helped solidify the church's view of who Christ is. Then toward the tail end of that century, in 387, Augustine of Hippo was converted and baptized. And see, the thing about Augustine is that he was considered by many to be the very first reformer, almost a thousand years, over a thousand years before Martin Luther came on the scene. His work, entitled Confessions, was extremely influential to reformers to come, as it outlined the putting on of Jesus Christ by faith alone and not by works. And yet, his work would largely be ignored for the better part of a millennia. The 5th century then, while the Roman church was under, or the Roman empire was under the leadership and at least understanding of Christianity, they began to get sacked by barbarian tribes, not once, but twice, in both 410 and 455. Augustine responded to the claims that people were making that Christians were to blame for the sacking of Rome. Augustine said, <clears throat> that the rise and fall of mankind's kingdoms were no surprise to Christians, as our aim wasn't to be concerned necessarily about man's kingdoms, but to build up the kingdom of God. He also helped quell another event known as the Pelagian Controversy, where an attempt was made by some to claim that mankind could be saved on its own, by its own efforts and its own works. And Augustine began expounding on the topics of grace, on the topics of original sin, total depravity, the insufficiency of man's works, all to quell a works-based salvation among the church. His effort, like I said, would prove to be very short-lived. So let's accelerate a little bit and not spend as much time in each century. In the 6th century, there was an expansion of the church to new areas with the development of monasticism or monasteries and some of the earliest church planters. This continued into the early part of the 7th century with the rise of Gregory the Great, whose efforts were contrasted by another man's rise, some of you may have heard of him, Muhammad. The followers of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, exponentially increased until he had conquered over half of the Roman kingdom. He frequently did this by brutal tactics, doing whatever he could to take over this Roman empire. So you may ask, what was the church doing at this time where Muhammad was raging throughout the Roman empire? Well, the church, they were acting fat, dumb, and happy. Because in 684, at the Synod of Whitby, they discussed extremely important topics. Topics like what garb priests should wear, and what should monks have on their bodies, and when should we celebrate Easter? Meanwhile, Muhammad was taking over all of the land. The 8th century began to show a distinction, then, between Western and Eastern churches in their primary languages for Latin and Greek, respectively. The disintegration of the Roman Empire helped spur this separation even further with the disagreement in the 9th century over a portion of that Nicene Creed that we talked about earlier, which had been added to by the Church Fathers. See, that portion that was added described the relationship specifically between the Spirit and the Son, the Spirit to the Father and the Son. 
In addition to that theological dispute, the Western Church held that Pope Nicholas, uh, the Western Church head Pope Nicholas, began to expand his position over the whole of Christendom to the disdain of the Eastern Church head, Patriarch Photios. The 10th century then, known as the Dark Ages, saw the church's power expand even further. And shortly after its fall, the Roman Empire, the power shifted from Rome to Constantinople, leaving the popes in Rome to suddenly run their own show. They then utilized the financial backing of the sale of large tracts of land to establish their own dominance, because there was no one there to hold them accountable. The 11th century saw the culmination of two centuries worth of bickering between those Eastern and Western churches. That became known as the Great Schism. This divide split the church in two, forming the Holy Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. The 12th century then brought with it the Crusades, which besides the gigantic land grab that it became was also a way for devout Catholics to earn their way out of purgatory in the afterlife. If you served in the Crusades, you earned your way out of purgatory. But more to come on purgatory and the for that form of indulgences in a little bit. In addition to that skewed mission of land grabbing and purgatory, the Crusaders also failed to distinguish between Muslims and the Eastern Orthodox Christians and Jews. They killed whoever they came across. These Crusades continued from the 12th century into the 13th century, with the church standing by their claim that violence was needed to combat violence. And their all-important relics and sacred places that they were pursuing needed to be defended. This quest for worldwide power didn't even slow down into the 14th century, where it manifested itself so blatantly that the Catholic Church's headquarters was moved from Rome to Avignon, France, for 70 years in a period known as the Babylonian Captivity. Even after the church was moved back to Rome after those 70 years, another conflict arose over who was the divinely appointed pope at the time. And in the early 15th century, the papal schism occurred where there were at least three popes that were claiming divine appointment. Three popes in charge of the church at the same time for another 50 years. It was during this time that the period known as the Renaissance took hold. Known for its rebirth, among other things, of intellectual activity, the Renaissance led to the recovery of the original languages of Scripture into Greek and Hebrew, which allowed for the double-checking of the only version of Scripture that they had, the Latin Vulgate. Nothing was more important to the Reformation than the recovery of the original biblical languages. And it's here that we'll pause and delve into the depths of how the papal rebellion began. Because at the end of the day, that's what it was about, a rebellion against what the papacy was claiming. While Augustine, back in the 3rd and 4th century, he had a profound impact on the foundation of the Reformers, there were multiple factors at play culturally that contributed to this movement. Timothy George, he's a founding dean of Beeson Divinity School, he points out four different institutions which came under great stress during the Middle Ages. It's the, time, the Middle Ages is generally the time known from the death of Augustine in around 430 to the birth of Luther, 1483, so about a thousand years. The first one that came under great st stress was the papacy. During that Babylonian captivity, as well as the Great Schism, it shook the leadership of the church to its core and pointed out to those outside of Rome and Avignon the flaws that these men and their sinful natures had committed, and it suddenly exposed them as people with fallibility. The second institution was the Roman Empire itself. Its rise and fall, in addition to the increased status of nation-states like France, Spain, and England, the land-grabbing and greed of those in power was not easy for these men to relinquish. Not at all. 
but it was easy to observe the driving force of their policies, greed, especially with the decline of feudalism and the beginning of capitalism at that time. The third institution to come under duress was the university. There was a steep decline in both theology as well as the quality of teaching coming from these educational bulwarks. This increased the desire for a return to the basics or passion for the original language of the Bible. Finally, the last institution was the monastery. Monasteries filled four functions of their own, prayer, missions, hospitality, and learning. These functions ceased to be avenues that the monks could glorify God and instead became roads to salvation in addition to feuds among the various monastic orders, again pointing out the problem with putting men in charge. Out of all these institutional changes, there brewed distinct reforming movements. The earliest of these were the Waldensians. They were formed by Peter Waldo in 1170, right in the middle of the Crusades, in the middle of people earning their way out of purgatory by serving in a cause that they didn't necessarily believe in. Peter Waldo, uh, who may or may not have been his actual name and merely one ascribed by his followers since he was the founder of this following, uh, he decided that as a wealthy cloth merchant, he would renounce his status, his status in life, his position among the town, as well as his business, and he sold it after a conversion with the Lord. The Waldensians, who were centralized throughout France and Italy, they focused on helping the poor and destitute while reading and proclaiming the scriptures. Waldo himself received a Latin Vulgate Bible. Again, the only translation that they could have had. He received a Latin Vulgate that had been translated into French, the dialect that he spoke. They believed that everyone had a right to read the Bible and hand-copied as many copies as they could. While they were initially accepted by the church, the Waldensians were later excommunicated in the 1180s due to their threat of the function of the priesthood. The Waldensians survived their excommunication, eventually becoming a Protestant group in the 16th century, shortly after Luther's rise. The next to come along and capitalize on these institutional shifts were the Lollards, which is Dutch for mumble, as these people would walk around mumbling under their breath because they didn't want people to hear that they were speaking the biblical language in their own dialect, English. They were led by John Wycliffe in the late 14th century. While their views differed from the Roman Catholic Church, specifically in theology, they were most famous for covertly disseminating the first English copies of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate. This practice continued into the 16th century when seven Lollards were burned at the stake in 1519 for reading the Lord's Prayer in English. One of them, her name was Mistress Smith, had previously been arrested and was in the process of being released, being walked out of the jail by a bishop captor when he felt a paper up her sleeve of the arm that he was holding, only to reveal a copy of the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed written in English. She kept that on her person, and she was burned along with the rest of the Lollards. Moving from France and England now to Czechoslovakia, the next reforming movement were the Hussites, formed by John Huss in the early 1400s. Huss's theology focused on four main points. Number one, the word of God was to be preached freely, which was a precursor to sola scriptura. Number two, the Lord's Supper should be served to all faithful Christians with both the cup and the bread, as previously they were only allowed to take the bread. Number three, priests were not to accumulate wealth, instead have an emphasis on obedience and discipleship. And then number four, the fourth point of theology for the Hussites were that all public sins were to be punished, essentially enacting church discipline. 
The Hussites movement is often called the First Reformation, as many of their precepts align with Luther, surprisingly to him, unknowingly. Huss famously said while being burned alive that the Council of Constance in 1415, 100 years uh, and four, 104 years prior to, 102, I can't add, of 102 years prior to Luther's rise, that you may roast this goose, as the word Huss means goose in Czech. But a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. As I said, 102 years later, Luther wrote his 95 Theses, and that swan rose. The final reforming movement came from a very unlikely source. His name was Desiderius Erasmus, whom Luther described as, lovingly, a slippery eel. In 1516, in the city of Basel, Erasmus produced the first copy of the New Testament from the Greek, side by side with the Latin Vulgate, to provide a comparison. He sent a copy directly to Luther. And while a devout Catholic to the end of his days, he remained an important figure in the Reformation. So, thus far, we have a church that's built on the Word of God that eventually fell into the trap of materialism, greed, and power. In direct rebellion, various movements sprung up, which all emphasized the importance of the Holy Scriptures and their rightful interpretation above all else. Then along came a young Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther was born in 1483, in the middle of the bubonic plague, or Black Death. He lived in a time where people were constantly aware of death and very fearful of the afterlife. It also happened to be during a period when the church was taking full advantage of those fears in the form of indulgences. While Catholic theology, or dogma, stated that you were initially saved from your sinful nature by baptism, your continued sin required a penance or payment. That penance had three steps. The first was sorrow, then confession, and finally priestly absolution. But see, performing these three steps paid for the guilt of your sin, but they still did not cover the penalty that needed to be paid, the penance. That penalty was fulfilled, crazily enough, not by Christ's death, but by purgatory alone. Purgatory, you see, was the place that believers in Christ went after death and before going to heaven. It was here that you paid that penalty through suffering. A scary thought, as life itself was already hard for these people that were experiencing this huge epidemic of the Black Death. They already had enough. So what could you imagine these people trying to understand within their minds that suddenly, not only did they have to suffer here, but they also had to suffer in the afterlife in order to meet the Lord. A common saying at the time among people was, in the midst of life, we die. So not only did you have to earn your way into heaven by performing various works in accordance with the egregiousness of your sin, but you also had to concern yourself with performing various works in the afterlife as well. But then a brilliant marketing scheme arose by the Catholic Church in, a, in an opportunity known as the indulgences. You see, these could help pay for your penance to get out of purgatory quicker. So for those that were experiencing great suffering, they did not want to continue to suffer, so they bought indulgences that got them out of the suffering that was to come. These could help in lots of different ways, but coincidentally, these indulgences came along just at the same time, happenstance, I know, as St. Peter's Basilica was in need of a renovation. So suddenly the Catholic Church was offering you something to get out of suffering, while at the same time needing a complete revamp of one of their most famous chapels. A major promoter of this method of fundraising was a man named Albrecht. 
He was Archbishop of Mays and Mandenburg, Magdenburg, and Albrecht owed money to Rome for the purchase of his position. It was, it was very common in that time to buy your way up the Roman Catholic ladder, and the more money you had, the higher you rose. Albrecht uh, employed a Dominican monk by the name of Jonathan Johann Tetzel, whose famous advertising jingle was, as soon as a coin in the coffer sings, a soul in purgatory, as soon as a coin in the coffer sings, a soul in purgatory springs. Luther became extremely incensed with Tetzel and his methodology, and it was Tetzel's pursuit of indulgences that prompters Luther's authoring of the 95 Thesis. Until that point, Luther had been a good, if not great, Catholic Augustinian monk. His decision to become a man of the cloth occurred, according to tradition, after an intense thunderstorm where he feared for his life and hid under a tree and prayed to God to save him. He devoted himself to a life of piety and confessed with such great frequency his sins to the priest that the priest told him to come back when his sins were worthy of a confession. He was in such despair over his sinfulness that he once wrote, I hate this righteous God. It was after reading the Greek New Testament from Erasmus that Luther was able to see that righteousness came from God and God alone. This understanding came from studying the writings of Augustine and the original Greek. It was that original language in Romans 1, 16, 17 that Luther gave Luther the fresh understanding of righteousness. In the Latin Vulgate Bible, you see, the word for justification is justificare, which means to make righteous. The original, to make righteous, that's important to think of, to make righteous. And yet in the original Greek, the word for justification, dikaios, which means to declare righteous. So to make righteous or declare righteous, it's a big difference. If you're a man who has spent most of his adult life in sorrow and regret over the unrighteous state of your soul, constantly feeling in the need of confession, constantly stating how frustrated you are with the process. The 95 Theses were not initially intended to divide the church, but reform errors Luther saw within the church, primarily the sale of indulgences by Tetzel um, in lieu of faith alone in Christ's saving work. So while the life of Martin Luther could easily be expounded on and we could spend the next six months talking about Luther's life, this would not help us answer the initial question, which is why does all this matter? Why should we care in 2017 what happened 500 years ago? Well, on October 31st, 2016, a little over a year ago, Pope Francis, the current head of the Roman Catholic Church, spoke at a prayer service in Sweden commemorating the beginning of the year of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And here's a snippet from the homily that Pope Francis delivered. This is what he said. As Catholics and Lutherans, we have undertaken a common journey of reconciliation. Now, in the context of the commemoration of the Reformation of 1517, we have a new opportunity to accept a common path, one that has taken shape over the past 50 years in the ecumenical dialogue between the Lutheran World Federation and the Catholic Church. Nor can we be resigned to the division and distance that our separation has created between us. We have the opportunity to mend a critical moment of our history by moving beyond the controversies and disagreements that have often prevented us from understanding one another. The spiritual experience of Martin Luther challenges us to remember that apart from God, we can do nothing. How can I get a propitious God? This is the question that haunted Luther. In effect, the question of a just relationship with God is the decisive question for our lives. 
As we know, Luther encountered that propitious God in the good news of Jesus, incarnate, dead, and risen. With the concept by grace alone, he reminds us that God always takes the initiative prior to any human response, even as he seeks to awaken that response. The doctrine of justification thus expresses the essence of human existence before God. The Pope concluded with this. He said, Jesus intercedes for us as our mediator before the Father. He asks him that his disciples may be one so that the world may believe. This is what comforts us and inspires us to be one with Jesus. And thus to pray, grant us the gift of unity so that the world may believe in the power of your mercy. This is the testimony the world expects from us. We Christians will be credible witnesses of mercy to the extent that forgiveness, renewal, and reconciliation are daily experienced in our midst. Together we can proclaim and manifest God's mercy concretely and joyfully by upholding and promoting the dignity of every person. Without this service to the world and in the world, Christian faith is incomplete. Those are the words of the Pope. So you see, the views of the Catholic Church, they have not changed regarding justification. Greg Allison, he's a professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological, and he's the author of a book on it. He spoke at TGC 2017 on how Roman Catholic theology is an entire worldview and culture, and without radical and extreme change, we are on very, very different sides of the salvation issue. You see, both religions do share commonalities between Protestantism and Catholicism, and these should not be overlooked. We both believe in the Trinity. We both believe the same nature of God as eternal, independent, loving, holy, righteous, etc. The general revelation to all people at all times and all places and the particular revelation of God. We believe together in the person of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man, a hypostatic union. We all believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ as a penal substitute. We believe in the person and work of the Holy Spirit and the glory and travesty of human beings created in the divine image. Yet we have all sinned and fall short. We also agree with Catholics on original sin. We believe that the salvation is initiated by God and grace precedes conversion. That God makes us his people and in the living hope of the return of Christ, his final judgment, and a new heaven and earth. However, there are words we both use that have vastly different meanings that are true, as true then as they are now. Meanings like gospel, grace, evangelization, mercy. We have many key differences with Catholics. These include scripture, specifically the canon. This includes divine revelation and tradition, or sola scriptura, scripture alone and who can interpret it. We differ on the image of God. We differ on sin. We differ on Mary, the mother of Jesus. We differ on the church. We differ on ecclesiology. We differ on the number of sacraments, seven for Catholics versus two for us Protestants. It's a lot of differences that we can't neglect either. You see, on the issue of salvation, Protestants and Roman Catholics disagree on multiple points of how people, the very essence of how people are saved. Catholics' justification is not only the remission of sins, but also sanctification and renewal of the interior person. Protestants believe justification by grace alone, declared not guilty, but righteous by the righteousness of Christ. Catholics believe that good works merit eternal life. Protestants believe good works are the fruits of justification. Catholics deny the perseverance of the saints, while Reformed Protestants affirm the perseverance of the saints, and show accompanying salvation. Catholics believe that purgatory is a place where the soul, not perfectly purified from the taint of sin, endures passive suffering. The soul eventually goes to heaven, but it goes to heaven through its service in purgatory, indulgences, masses, and even prayers for those dead people to get them out of purgatory. Protestants don't believe any of that and hold to justification with no need for purgatory due to imputed righteousness. 
The reason Catholics can't get away from justification by works is in the very basis of their system, which is grounded on two principles. The first of those principles is the interdependence of nature and grace, how nature and grace are tied together indefinitely and they can't be separated. Nature, you see, is obviously anything created, while grace is unmerited favor from God. Catholics view nature as capable of receiving and transmitting or infusing the grace of God, that grace must be concretely infused through natural elements. This is seen primarily within the Catholic sacraments. For example, during baptism, water, which is the nature, cleanses original sin and causes the infant to become part of the church. That's grace. During confirmation, oil, nature, renews the baptismal grace and makes the child a participant in the mission of the church, grace. During communion, the priest changes, literally changes the bread and wine, or nature, into the actual body and blood of Christ through a process called transubstantiation, and he sends grace down to the partaker. So the first being nature and grace and their interdependence. The second principle that's foundational that prevents justification by anything but works is that the Christ-Church interconnection. This is what mediates between nature and grace, Christ's earthly incarnation and his continuation, the church. You see, within the church exists both the divine and the human nature of Christ, as well as his physical body. The Pope, being the head of the church, is the vicar of Christ, the human representation of Christ. When the priest celebrates the sacraments, he stands before the church as the actual person of Christ. When a priest celebrates communion and practices that, he's standing before the Mass as the person of Christ. That's what they believe, as if Christ himself were the one participating in communion and handing out the wafer and letting them drink the wine. So how could a system where grace is only bestowed by nature ever allow for it to be imputed by us, to us, by Christ, through faith according to Christ? That It can't. How could a system where Christ is represented by man in the church ever allow itself to be excluded in the process of bestowing grace? It can't without significant extreme and radical change. These are the very tenets of Catholicism when broken down. So no, the Reformation is not over. The fight cannot be given up on. The Reformation of the Catholic Church is not complete. And while we don't celebrate that fact, we don't celebrate our differences, it's still a battle that we can't give up on with all the points that we can't waver on lest we risk denouncing the saving work of Jesus Christ. Nor should we necessarily celebrate the man who officially kicked off the Reformation. Luther was a man with a sinful nature just like us. He was not without his faults, including a short temper and harsh words, among others. But these were just the tip of the iceberg. Luther was more famously known for his anti-Semitism. What started as a frustration and desire for both Jews and Catholics to understand the true meaning of the gospel swelled into a crescendo toward the end of his life, where Luther felt that Jewish synagogues and schools should be outlawed, their teachers banned, and that assets for money lending should be confiscated and used to support Jews who had converted. And these were the tame thoughts. The point of these facts about Luther's character is not to shame the man or detract from the work that he did, but merely to highlight that he was, at the end of his life, just as much of a man in need of grace as he was uh, when he was standing terrified under a tree during a thunderstorm. It's no different. Luther himself wrote, Simul justus et peccator, or simultaneously just and sinner. The same could be said about each and every reformer. They were all men and women in dire need of relief from their overwhelming sin that blackened their souls and were desperate for saving faith. No different than us.
writing of how we should honor, not celebrate Luther, Bernard Howard, who's a pastor at the Good Shepherd Anglican Church, said, let's honor him for confronting the hollow deceptiveness of Roman Catholicism of that time. Let's honor him for translating the Bible into the language of ordinary people so they could read for themselves the words of eternal life. Let's honor him for releasing countless monks and nuns across Europe from lives of cloistered ritual and mandated celibacy. Luther was a mighty instrument of awakening, deserving honor in this anniversary year. But his honor shouldn't rise to the level of celebration. What we can celebrate is the fact that we are justified by faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, through grace alone, sola gratia, according to the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, for the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. The Reformation still matters today because there are still people in religions that expect to earn their way into heaven, that practically negate the very essence of the righteousness given by Christ's death on the cross. The Reformation was not complete 500 years ago, But in fact, the battle still rages on with more fervency in a culture that thinks that their works, their goodness, earns them adoption into the family of God. Let us then, as Protestant, Reformers, Baptists, Christians, let us all continue to lovingly debate and address the dire need of our fellow man to let go of their attempt to earn righteousness and accept the free gift of salvation for all who believe. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the verses that turned the world on its head when Luther realized the power of the words that the righteousness is given to him. Paul wrote this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray for us. Lord God, more than ever, we are in dire need of understanding, of clarity. God, I pray that we would look to these early church fathers, these early church women that made such a stand for your kingdom, that were willing to die for your gospel, just like the early church was, Lord, that we would look to them and honor them and not celebrate them, but honor them for their works, for what they did for your kingdom. But ultimately, God, that it would point us to the gift of righteousness from your son. That what they did, the stand they took, was to fight for that righteousness, to point out the errancies of the papacy because they loved your word. God, so much has changed since then in the last 500 years from our education to our religious systems to culture and the way in which we think of your word. And it's because of the work that they did that we can celebrate and have apps that have our Bibles on them, that we can have Bibles in multiple translations in all kinds of languages and that are constantly growing and expanding. And I ask, Lord, that we would remember what they did and what you did through them that enables us to have the scriptures at our fingertips in whatever way we choose. God, I pray that you would strengthen us and that you would help us to not forget that there's still a battle raging for people and souls that think that they have to earn their way to you. God, we ask so wholeheartedly that you would change their hearts, help them to see the free gift that you've given them, and that they could accept the righteousness and the gift of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. We ask all these things tonight, Lord, in your precious and holy name. Amen.